Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. This is episode 690 with Dr. Jennifer Gutman, a path to sustainable life satisfaction. Enjoy. Hey, and welcome back to the Hidden Why podcast. How the heck are you, everyone? I hope you're well. Man, I'm pumped. It's a uh, beautiful day. Guys, today I am bringing you an interview I did with Dr. Jennifer Gutman. She is uh, just amazing, quite a laugh actually, and I do love her laugh. Um, she was feeling a little bit crook in this episode, and there's a bit of background noise, so I hope that doesn't uh, infect or interfere with the quality of recording. But anyway, she's uh, she's a great um, great lady, and and leaves us with a lot of value. We talk today about happiness and satisfaction in life, and and how we can bring balance um, to our moods and how we feel day to day, so we can live a sustainable life of satisfaction, a sustainable life of happiness. What I really love towards the end of this show, she shares with us from her book, A Path to Sustainable Life Satisfaction, six techniques or practices or or things that we can consider um, that can really help us improve our happiness. And we talk about, you know, decision-making, facing fears, avoiding assumptions, plus a few other things, man. It's really cool. I think you're going to love it, guys. I would love for you to jump online and let me know what you think. You can head on over to thehiddenwhy.com. Um, all the show notes will be there, the links to her book, um, the links to Jennifer herself so you can connect with her. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, man, I just enjoyed it. I really got a lot of value out of it. And there's a lot of things out of those six principles to think about and reflect on. It's very contextual. You can really relate to it, I'm sure. So let me know what you think. Jump on to thehiddenwhy.com, leave your comments and reach out to me via email. Enjoy, guys. Thank you. G'day, Jennifer, and welcome to the Hidden Wife Podcast. How are you today? Great, and thank you so much for having me. Let's be honest, you're not too well, are you? I've gotten you out of bed. Um, you're not <laughs> feeling that well, but you're just pushing through it. Yes, because I was so excited to be with you, talk to you from so far away, and um, talk to your audience. So, yes, I'm very excited. That's good, good. Now I look forward to having you on the show as well, and um, I'm glad you're here now. And because I know we've we've had a couple of delays there, um, getting the schedule worked for both of us. But um, it's early morning for you. It's 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 sort of close to my bedtime. I'm a pretty um, early riser, and I, I'm early to bed as well. But um, let's uh, have a little bit of fun with this. And I really am um, excited to talk about your new book, A Path to Sustainable Life Satisfaction. Tell us a little bit about um, what got you to write this book. I know you've you, you bit of your backstory and that, but um, give a short version. So I think the short version is that, <clears throat> you know, as an adolescent and a young adult, I thought that the goal was to be happy, as a lot of people do. Yeah. And I was judging myself and felt that other people were judging me because I was falling short at being constantly in a um, an exuberant or a jovial mood. So if I wasn't smiling all the time, people are asking me what was wrong with me. And I was shy and awkward. And I felt like I was ineffective in the world and pretty unlovable. How old were you? Well, like I, this is like sort of 13 or something. Was that the story? Uh, yeah, I think that I, around that time when I was feeling a lot like that, probably 11, 12, 13, 14. Yep. And I was an expert people pleaser, very good people pleaser. Um, but I couldn't make decisions on my own, afraid all the time. And if I didn't like myself, I couldn't imagine why other people would like me. 
And so I definitely was one of those people, like a lot of people in the world, that um, was chasing happiness. At, at the age of 14, you thought that was sort of what it's all about? Yeah, because so many people around me, why aren't you happy? Why aren't you happy? Why aren't you happy? What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> Um, and then over the years, I've been practicing for a long time, over 20 years, clients would come in complaining about existential despair and not being happy. <clears throat> and it seemed like they were chasing something that no matter how hard we worked in cognitive behavior therapy, we weren't able to get at this happy thing that they looked to, were looking for that was like a golden chalice at the end of a rainbow that was sort of unsustainable. Yeah. So I started looking at what was working with my clients and what wasn't working. And I started to think a little bit about what would in the end become sustainable life satisfaction. And then two things happened. Um, I had two watershed events. One, I suffered from life threatening pulmonary embolisms. And within 12 months of that, my father passed away. And when those two events happened, I really had to embrace the cliched statement that life is short. I felt that all of a sudden that had become my life <laughs> and that <clears throat> I needed to like get off of my couch and catalyze all the things that I had been thinking about, about what is happiness and what are people looking for. And if I was going to do something about it, I needed to do it now. Because mm -hmm. time might run out. You said you had that sort of uh, the realization that mm -hmm. um, we only get one one shot at this, and time time doesn't last forever for us. Exactly. Nobody was slowing down for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, armed with that energy, I first decided that I was going to do a deeper dive into what the definition of happy was, and that was really interesting to me because. The definition of happy actually in the dictionary is satisfaction or contentment, mm -hmm. which I find incredibly surprising. Sorry, Jennifer, can I just interrupt for one second? Yeah. I've got a bit of a, um, like a uh, echo sort of sound coming through. Can you hear that or is it just my end? I don't hear it at all. Okay. We'll, we'll keep going. We'll see how we go. Sorry to okay. interrupt. Definition of happiness. The definition of happiness I found was um, satisfaction or contentment. Yeah. And um, when he looked at the synonyms, the synonyms were more similar to what I would consider the way that the sexier way that happiness has been promoted in the world today, which was joyful and buoyant and effervescent, except the synonyms are not the same synonyms that you would use to um, uh, for satisfaction or contentment. And I thought that was a, an enormous problem. So people were chasing something that actually wasn't even the definition of happiness. Hmm. And so then <clears throat> I started to think about. So, so this all came as, as a result of, of you know, that, the bit of the trauma that you went through, your father's death, et cetera. Is that the time that this all same? Exactly. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yep, yep. Yeah. So then I started to think about what was satisfaction and that people need a balance of moods, some combination of elevation of moods and lower moods in order to 
um, appreciate high moods and appreciate low moods. And that balance is what's in between. And that within balance is satisfaction and that satisfaction is sustainable and not predicated on a dopamine push that you would get from an event or a purchase. And then I started to think about satisfaction's definition. And I, I see satisfaction as being at ease with your body, with your mind, with your situation, and, uh, like a pleasurable feeling that you get when you uh, have done or are in the process of executing something that you wanted to do. Um, or you're fulfilling the wishes or expectations that you have of yourself. And that's different than how people have seen what happy is, which I think is very externally driven. It's dependent on other people. And okay. then I started to and then I started to look at when might this have all gone awry? In your own life or No, well, yes, but also in the world, like developmentally, because babies yeah. are satisfied. <laughs> babies are satisfied. And if you think of a balance of emotions, when babies get hurt, they cry. Babies are wet. They cry. Are they satisfied are, when they're, when they're sort of crying? And, and no, but, but that's what I'm talking about. The balance. So if they have a balance and they're typically satisfied and just searching for watching and learning, those are peaceful, content, satisfied motions. And then they have lows when they're crying hungry and hungry or, yeah. or wet. Mm-hmm. And then they have highs when they're tickled or and then they laugh, things like that. Yeah. But in between, babies are pretty peaceful and content and they're looking around and watching and learning. Mm-hmm. And getting input from their world. And I thought babies were a good place to look to start. And then I, I started to look at a lot of research. And it seemed to me that life gets in the way in terms of other people starting to impact babies. So teachers, parents, grandparents, in all of the most well-intended ways come in and start to rescue and or reinforce babies and children for their behaviors. But unfortunately, some of those rescue attempts and reinforcement can backhandedly undermine self-confidence. And there's scientific evidence that would say, if you look at social learning theory, or self-confidence that it uh, that it undermines their feelings of confidence, lovability, self-reliance, coping, interdependence. And I started to think of those as action problems. Yeah. That were inhibiting our ability to be life satisfied. Right. And if we can't be life satisfied, then that alone would inhibit our ability to be have moments of happiness or embrace moments of happiness. Hmm. And as a cognitive behaviorist, I thought, okay, so cognitive behaviorists have come along and effectively provided thinking solutions to these action problems, except that 
I don't know that the thinking solutions have gone far enough all of the time, even though they're good. What do you mean by thinking solutions? Things like uh, balancing thinking errors, um, fortune telling, magnification, minimization, all or none thinking, thought stopping techniques. Um, Okay, so just what, trying to assess our thoughts and, and see what they're going Yes, in. and how to impact behavior that way. Okay. Hmm. So. Well, a lot of people say that our thoughts, you know, are definitely sort of, well, not definitely, impact. but determine our behavior. Exactly. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I've been in cognitive behaviors for 25 years. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I think that what I started to wonder, though, is, if I could offer people simple behaviors to do with a bedrock of an understanding of cognitive behavior therapy and their thinking, would simple behaviors, what a child would call action solutions, hmm. help them achieve satisfaction with a goal of getting rebuilding the self-confidence, effectiveness in the world, interdependence, feelings of self-worth, self-reliance, lovability, the things that they had lost and had been gone awry when they were young and being rescued and reinforced by people in the outside world. Mm-hmm. So we're sort of reversing the what we, how we typically would approach such levels of satisfaction by adopting some maybe healthier behaviors. Um, but they, they would therefore influence our, our thoughts as well, those behaviors, wouldn't they? Yes. Right. So in my way, it would be that you do the behavior, the behavior helps impact how you think, particularly about yourself, mm-hmm. as opposed to having the world impact what you do. Mm-hmm. And your behaviors, and then trying to think about whether you're thinking about the world correctly. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. I've actually had a guest on the show in the past, um, was it Jeffrey Slater, and he, he sort of talked about um, belief and behavior and how you know belief is not always coming first because we often think you have to have belief and then act. But he was saying that if you take action, you can actually then create belief through that action, and it's similar to what you're saying. It's yes, exactly. Love that. Yes. Hmm. Rather than um, sort of assessing your thoughts and, and you know analyzing them and and sort of you know detaching yourself from them to then better control your behaviors, you're looking at behaviors that can help sort of enhance the sort of thoughts that you want to have that will then help you live with greater satisfaction. Exactly, because if you do that with behaviors, then you create a body of evidence on your own. Yeah, so there's a couple of different elements to this. So it's, it's one is you know looking at those behaviours, which I'm sure we'll jump into soon, to then sort of enhance the mood, the, the thoughts, the feelings, the satisfaction that we're having. But the other one is that whole external, internal sort of matter. You know, being driven by external motivations rather than internal motivations. Um, and I want to sort of just nut down back into that definition again because. And perhaps, I mean, as you described, we, we have this definition of happiness wrong and we're all chasing what we think is happiness and, and we're all being, we all think happiness is some sort of external, you know, some, some sort of state of being that is, is sourced through an external um, 
what do you say, through external matters. So like um, getting the job or, or buying the car or earning more money. Right. So that's, that's absolutely right. I do believe that. I think that we delegate a tremendous amount of control to the outside world to legitimize our behavior, except that the outside world is fickle and unreliable in terms of their ability to reinforce and reassure, reassure us. And that leaves us floundering out there, unable to figure out where we stand. And that can lead to a lot of despair. And yeah. Well, then you look deeper to the outside world. What is the outside world? It's, it's just all a matter of perception and opinions, anyway, isn't it? And beliefs and yeah, yeah. And that's why it's so. It's that's why it's so fickle. Because one of the examples that I give to people all day long is I'll put, you know, I'll I'll put pretend that there's two people in front of them, and I'll say, you have person X at a job, and they're doing exactly the same job as person Y. They're working the same hard way, you know. At the same difficulty job, they're working as hard as each other. They're working the same amount of hours. They're working, um, you know, the, the same tasks. Everything about the jobs is the same. The only difference is that at one of these companies, they made better financial decisions, so the company did better. <laughs> and the other company didn't make better financial decisions, and it didn't do as well. And mm. that person who's working there had no control over the decisions that the company made and how much money that it made. And so when bonus and and um, raise time came around, the person, <clears throat> person X gets this big raise. Ooh, sorry. You're up. You fall off your chair. No, <laughs> because I was supposed to get up a little bit later for our call, so the alarm went off. Oh, I couldn't hear. Um, <laughs> um, so, person X gets a bonus, and person X gets a raise, and they're excited, and they're like, "Oh, look, I did well at my job," and person Y doesn't get a raise and doesn't get a bonus because the company cannot afford to give them those, you know, outside reinforcers, those tangible reinforcers through the job. And that person is despairing, thinking, what went wrong? What could I have done better? This is so frustrating and all. And they can look back and say that they still did a good job at their job. And their mood is Im impacted by the fact that in the end, they didn't get the reinforcement that they were looking from from the job. But there's too many things that are outside of their control that are related to economics and financial constraints and the world and lots of things going on in the world that affect things that affect us. So the only thing that we control is what we do. And if we evaluate that we did a good job, that has to be good enough. Yeah, interesting. So, um, yeah, it's how they're sort of uh, perceiving the external things that are outside their control um, that's going to have an impact on, on that situation. Obviously, one person uh, was fortunate enough to be in a situation where the external realities was favourable, the other one wasn't, and then they're sort of reverting inwardsly, finding blame, fault and, and self identity issues rather than sort of going, hey, that's outside of my control. I still did a really good job. I did the best I could. Exactly. And so they legitimize or delegitimize themselves based on that. And mm. it creates tremendous problems. 
uh, with self-worth and self-respect. And we need to change that. There's another situation too here. Let's just talk about this one. So same thing, two people working at the same job. Uh, everything's exactly the same in their life. The job's exactly the same. In that same situation, one person could be absolutely satisfied with their life. The other person could be not at all satisfied. Uh, the same. Okay. You know what I mean? So, so we're, we're, yes, we're not yes. looking at external differences here. There's not one company yes, that's doing yes. better than the oh, other. Oh, I get that all the time. I love that. That was such a good example. I love that. <laughs> so they're, they're in the same, they're actually yes. in the same position, but how they're perceiving their, yes. their world and, and how they're yes. viewing the world is totally yes. different. That's why one person is yes. experiencing an on a more satisfaction, satisfactory level. Yes. yes. So I love my job because I love answering that question. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's go. <laughs> um, okay. So the answer to that question is within, in my opinion, the techniques. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because I would get oftentimes many people that <clears throat> for all intents and purposes, you know, like either things were going typical or two people would be the same or, or somebody would appear on the outside to be what uh, most people would in quotes determine as successful and they would still come in and say that they were not happy. They were not satisfied. So what was going on with that? That didn't make sense based on my paradigm. Right. Hmm. So what I started to notice was that if a person gets, so let's say we take for a moment, somebody, let's say we take two, um, relatively successful CEOs of the same company and they, you know, one is satisfied as one is not. That's your question, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. The one that is not, in my experience, what happens is those action problems that have gone awry, even though at work they have been, they're, they're fine. And that person, he or she is performing at a level of competence that is good and getting reinforced at work well they're not internalizing it because there are other aspects of their life that are not going as well mm. and so you have to look at all of the venues of a person's life in order to determine whether they're satisfied in their lives and if you eliminate major parts of a person's life then you will get a lot of despair because if a person gets complimented at work and then they're, and they're told you're doing such a great job here and that person feels like a fraud at home because they're not paying their bills or they're late with their insurance payments or something like that or they didn't follow through on the call they were supposed to make for a friend, then what's going through their mind when they're getting the compliment at work is, yeah, but if you only knew how I was in the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And they can't, and so it doesn't matter that they're doing the same job as the other person because what's haunting them is all the things that are left undone and that they feel like a fraud in the job that they're doing well in because the rest of their life is not going so well. Yeah. What if the scenario was that some of the other elements in their life were going well, 
yet they were still showing mm-hmm. up and experiencing different levels of satisfaction. Let's say their relationships were the same, they had the same car, the same house, they're in a vacuum. Even with other elements of our life, on par with well, the other person. So what are you ex- saying? Oh. Yeah, could one experience that, that, that life on a different level of satisfaction than the other? Well, I mean, are, are you saying that if two people had done every all of my techniques, could they experience different levels of satisfaction? No, no, Is that what you're not, asking? not your techniques, because um, I want to get into these techniques. I assume that's um, a part no, of No, I'm just... Like, I'm just trying to understand, like, when you say in a vacuum, I'm trying to understand what the vacuum is. Well, if, if, <laughs> like let's just say we have two, two twins and they, they were brought up the same and then they went out into the world and they went and got the same degree, they got the same job, they got the, <laughs> not the same girlfriend, but, you know, whatever. Um, they got a girlfriend, they got a house, they got a car. You know, they just went forward in that momentum. Can one person experience a different level of satisfaction or happiness over the other? They can because each person, even if you're twins, has their own DNA and their own fingerprint. Yeah. And so how they absorb material from the outside world is different because no two people are the same. Yeah. So regardless of how similar they may be or their life circumstances may be, they're still individuals with their own DNA and their own fingerprint. And because of that, they absorb, interpret, and then respond to the world in very different ways. And all of that impacts their satisfaction. Yeah, right. So that's with the external realities all being equal, um, it's really up to what's going on internally to influence the level of satisfaction one's going to have in life. Exactly. Which sort of determines the fact that happiness or more satisfaction is is a matter of, um, or is internally sourced. I believe that it's completely internally sourced. I, I, I really think that it's not something that you can delegate to anybody. Hmm. Yeah, it's really cool. I like that. Um, so tell us about some of these techniques. I mean, you in your book, you, you talk about um, what, six elements or six, are they techniques, I guess, or... Yeah, six techniques, six components, yeah. Six components, yeah. So you talk about these six components in the book, um, and I assume these are what you refer to as techniques, so behaviors that can help us influence. Yes. um, Right, so I call them, right, so you can think of them as um, action solutions or techniques or component things like that, action things that you can do in order to work towards living a life more satisfied It's really important to do all of them, not just one of them, because if you cherry pick through them, that's not going to work. Okay. So you've you've got Um, to implement all of them. You can't, do you start with one and build towards them or? Yes. Yeah. You start with one and you build towards them. And the reason for that is because if you remember what I said when I was talking about the babies was that when, when the world uh, made up of teachers and grandparents and parents and all that comes in and in a well-intentioned way, rescues and reinforces us. What it does is it starts to backhandedly undermine self-efficacy and self-worth and self-confidence and interdependence and all of these things. If each one of these techniques is targeting some of those things. And so if you only build up one of those things, then you're not going to be satisfied. Yeah. So that's okay. why they need, you need to do all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were, they were put together for a reason. 
Yeah. No, I didn't just that. throw darts against a wall is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. All right. So let's get into some of them. Okay, so what I'm going to do, I think, is I'm just going to say what they are, yep. and then how about if I talk a little bit about them? Does that work? Yeah, cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll have a discussion around each of them. So, number one. Okay, so the first one is starting is easy and closing is hard. The second one is about decision-making. The third one is about facing fears. The fourth one is about reducing people-pleasing behavior. The fifth one is about avoiding assumptions. And the sixth one is active self-reinforcement. Okay. The one I found most um, interesting is reduce people-pleasing behaviors. Um, and also the first one, uh, starting is easy, closing is hard. The other ones I can sort of, you know, you can sort of read between the lines and, and get them. But um, let's let's start with starting easy, closing is hard. Uh, what's that all yep. about? And, and what are a couple of the um, you know practices or, or actions that we could sort of look at? Right. So... It's important for people to close tasks in their life and not just start them. A lot of people come into my practice, as I mentioned before, saying that they feel like imposters or frauds in their lives. And the reason for that is because they may be finishing one task or aspect in their life, but they're not finishing all the tasks or aspects mm, in their lives. That's a really so they could good be, point. What were you going to say? I said that's a really good point. So they may be finishing, thank you, they may be finishing tasks at work, but they're not finishing tasks in their home life or they're not finishing tasks with friends and those tasks haunt them. Mm, So then if they get a compliment at work for being, in my terminology, a closer, they know that there are other tasks and other aspects of their lives that they're not closing and they find it hard to accept then the compliments and that makes them not feel good about themselves. And that continues to yield that feeling of imposter syndrome, even though they feel successful at work. And that erodes their sense of self and their sense of self-confidence and in turn erodes satisfaction in their lives. Right. So my suggestion is that people start to look at all aspects of their lives, not just work. Hmm. So you look at your work life, your home life, life with friends, and look at all the things in your life that might be haunting you that have been left uncompleted and make lists of those things and start to cross off those things that have been left unclosed. And it can be anything. I mean, I find that I've come up with the funniest things with people in sessions. It can be filing things, uh, home bills, getting your passport updated, putting pictures in folders on the phone, unsubscribing from email lists, (laughs) getting in touch with old friends. I mean, there's so many things. And a lot of people cleaning out the junk drawer. I mean, people say that they come into their homes and the minute they look in their homes, they're like, oh my God, so many things are staring me at the face, in the face. And they don't mean people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so any task that's in the back of your mind bothering you is undermining your competency level. And that's a huge problem. A huge impact on the level of satisfaction. Yeah, I can't agree more. Yes, Mm. huge. Mm. So as you start to cross them off, then you feel empowered and that makes you feel better about yourself and that brings self-confidence and self-satisfaction, life satisfaction. Yeah, I like that one. I mean, there's, there's, yeah, I mean, just what you started with there is, is, you know, completing unfinished tasks. Um, I think it's great. And 
I'm just thinking about it now. I mean, there's so many things uh, and reminders in my life where I've just gone, yep, clear the clutter. You know, I've either eliminated all these <laughs> things that I used to have on my list. Um, but then I even look today where I'm, I've, I've sort of minimalized things, uh, but I've still got some tasks that just aren't finished. And I know there's this underlying dissatisfaction or level of unease in my life because of these unfinished tasks. So I really like that one. Um, beautiful. Exactly. Mm. I'm glad that you can relate. What well, uh, number I'm two, decision-making. Okay, decision-making. This The next one is decision-making. I find that a lot of people delegate decision-making to other people. Uh-huh. They don't want to be responsible for the decisions that they're making because they feel if they make the wrong decision, they don't want to be responsible for the consequences of having made that decision. Yeah, where are so we going to go to happy- dinner tonight? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So they're happy <laughs> to either delegate decision that decision to a family member or a friend or anybody else. So, and it doesn't, I've noticed that it doesn't actually matter the size of the decision people are willing to delegate the smallest decisions so like you said going to a restaurant what movie to go to Mm. i've even had people delegate what nail polish color to pick um to the largest decisions where i've had people try to delegate a decision about what college to go to or what job to take And the reason for that is that people feel that other people know them better than they know themselves, or they feel that the consensus is a better way to make a decision than to make a decision based on their own personal authenticity. The thing with that is that people get caught up in the idea that there are right or wrong decisions. The reason that people believe that there are right or wrong decisions is... I think two things. One, social media has become a a large problem because social media implies through the pictures that people have figured out the right way to do things. And it looks like everybody has it going on. And what the social media pictures don't show is that everybody's guessing. And that's a problem because what people do when they look at a picture on social media is they fill in a narrative. The picture on social media is static, although now they're doing some of these movies, but whatever, it's still a snapshot movie. Um, And they fill in a narrative about what must be happening in this person's life before and after, but they're filling in a lot of narrative. That's a problem because it's a lot yeah. They're guessing, and and the people that are on the other side of the camera are also guessing. It's just that we don't realize that they're guessing. The other reason is that when we're children, our families often second-guess the decisions that we make. And they don't second-guess it to be mean. It's they second-guess it because they don't want us to get hurt. But the idea that it sends us is that there must be a right or wrong decision, And they often second guess it because they bring what they believe is their own maturity to the situation and they second guess it or they feel like they're protecting us. So they second guess it. But all of that erodes our belief and our confidence around our decision making ability. Mm -hmm. And that. That undermines it. It makes it harder, harder. Yeah. So I tell people if let's say I put 10 people in a room. Hmm. And I tell people, choose option A or B. Five people will choose option A. Five people will choose option B. Neither one will be wrong. Of the people that choose option A, 
two will decide that they wish that they had chose option B. Of the people that chose option B, two will decide that they wish that they had chose option A. Yeah. The people that have creativity of mind and flexibility of thought will realize that because no decisions are permanent or not changeable, they can problem solve their way to get a close approximation of going back and doing the other thing. Mm-hmm. Because they they can change decisions that they make once they make them. And I tell people that you can create doors as long as you are calm enough to find the door to get an an outcome that's a close approximation of your initial choice. And that liberates a lot of people in their ability to make decisions um, when they see that they can change them. And then this comes back to that DNA fingerprint thing, which is it's important for people to understand that Nobody can really make a decision for you because they are not authentically you. Yeah. As people start to make these decisions, whether they're large or small, it doesn't matter whether it's nail polish or going to college, that making a decision without a consensus on your own builds a tremendous amount of self-confidence in your belief in your ability to cope. Very important. With the fact that you made Mm. a decision. Mm-hmm. Well, it, yeah. it's like that sort of growth mindset versus fixed mindset, isn't it? It sort of shows you that um, it empowers you to know that you have some level of control over the direction and it all comes down to decisions, our behaviours, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's really cool. I like it. Okay, and then facing fears. I did have a question about decision-making um, with, with regards to fears. It was, yeah, the fears of failure. Like making decisions and we don't want to fail, do we? We don't want to think we um, stuff it up. Right. Well, that's why people think that there's a right or wrong yeah, decision. Yeah, yeah, okay. Except that there's no decision that's wrong or failing because there's growth in every decision. I mean, people – like I have failed – Many, many, many times in my life, if you want to think. But what's the definition of failure, really? I mean, when you fail at something, it's an opportunity to learn and grow and then either try something that's a close approximation of that some other time in your life in another way or try something else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I like it. That's encouraging. Um, Well, let's face our fears. Okay, the third technique is facing fears, and (laughs) it is about learning to be comfortable with fear and actually embracing fear instead of running from it, because within being comfortable with fear is your belief in your competency and your coping ability. So I encourage people to make fear their co-captain or sous chef in their lives. Yeah. And what I ask people to do is wake up every morning and face one fear every day, not something that is going to give them an anxiety attack or panic attack or put them in danger, but some small thing that they would typically avoid or not do because they it would either make them anxious avoidant or because they didn't want to do it or they were fearful about it, but to show their brains that they are competent and they can cope with anxiety-provoking or fearful situations. By doing that, living on the edge of their competency, then they 
develop more self-respect and more self-confidence mm. in their lives mm. as opposed to not facing fears because when people don't face fears, they live in a very homeostatic environment. When you push the levels of your competency and you don't live in a homeostatic environment, then, you know, you're putting yourself in a place <clears throat> where you're pushing the envelope. So... Facing a fear might be learning a foreign language or taking up an instrument or taking a class. Expanding your horizons in any way can be something that you might want to consider doing. Pushing the borders is really it's growth in, activity, it's isn't important. It? Hmm. It's a growth activity. And it's an activity that helps people then not live in an area of self-doubt or low self-respect because they feel like they've hit the ceiling on what their capability is. And this goes for people of all ages. And that's really, really important that people don't at some point become complacent about uh, pushing them, continuing to push themselves. And I do think that that's one of the problems that happens in retirement. Do you think with the fears, um, like we should, we should embrace all fears or, or sometimes our fears that we have simply just pointless and, you know, we should just sort of forget about them. You know what I mean? Like I, I just think there's, there's some fears that perhaps we have that are irrelevant to change and growth and all that anyway, that maybe we just need to, to remove them and avoid them and forget about them. Um, you have to give me an example. Uh, I don't know, a fear of cockroaches. Like, I, you know, I oh, sort of a fearful yeah. of, of cockroaches. Yeah. They're creepy, crawly. I don't really need yeah. to go and sit in a bucket of them. Right. Agree. <clears throat> so for something like that, I mean, this is where there is a benefit to things like tried and true, like desensitization if you want to, if you have to be around cockroaches. So let's say... Um, I don't like cockroaches either, by the way. And I also don't like those palmetto bugs that you find in like places. (laughs) (laughs) Like if I knew I was going to be in a place with a lot of palmetto bugs and I felt like I wanted to deal with palmetto bugs before I was going there, I probably would go through some kind of desensitization exercise to make sure I had dealt with palmetto bugs before I went there. Now, if I did that... Um, with the help of somebody, then that would be facing fears just because I was dealing with my palmetto bug issue before I went there so that I didn't avoid going to the place I wanted to go to. Right, yeah. So it's based on your bug. motivation, yeah? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. And, um, it, it, you know, fears and being uncomfortable, they're sort of part and part of the same thing? Oh, yeah, 100%. I want people to be uncomfortable. <laughs> like, like I, you know, for example, I'll get up and have a turn the cold chair on, and that's just a way to. It's a good way to sort of energize the body, but it's it's also a good way to just put yourself like, ah, oh, this is going to be uncomfortable, and you just push yourself through it. It's not really that I fear it, but maybe there is a sense of fear there that it's going to be just bloody cold, and yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, hmm. yeah. Well, because it has to do with coping, and I think it's it's good. It's the same way some people say brush your teeth with the opposite hand or why I think some of those people do that, those, um, swims in the really cold water. It's to show yourself that you can do it. Go through, you can endure some, some <laughs> yes, sort of level Yes, you of can endure something. Pain right. and, and show that you're capable. Yeah, cool. Yes, I like that. I really yes. like that. There's so many things that we could, we could put into that, but let's move on to 
Um, okay. The next one, which was uh, of curiosity for me, reduce people-pleasing behaviors. People-pleasing. Right. So, so the reason that people try to please other people is as a way to avoid feeling like they're going to be dispensable or abandoned. They try to secure indispensability by pleasing other people. The problem with that is that a lot of times there is um, an unconscious belief in the reciprocity that those behaviors will get from the environment. So for example, if I help out with this or I do that, then maybe the person that I'm doing this for will treat me in a similar manner. Unfortunately, since, as I mentioned before, the outside world is fickle and unreliable. All you have control over is the behavior that you did and not how the other person responds to it. And very frequently the person does not respond in the same way, or many people do not respond in the same way. And you can end up being very disappointed. Mm. So my feeling about it is if you want to do something for somebody, I think that's fantastic, but I don't think that people hoping for doing something, hoping for um, a reciprocal behavior is is um, something that they should be hoping for, because that's not the way to secure indispensability in relationships. And I also think that it undermines a person's belief in their inherent lovability, because I think that they believe that what makes them lovable is the fact that they're doing all of these things for other people, as opposed to that they would be lovable whether they did these things for other people or whether they didn't do these things for other people. So uh, people need to believe that they're lovable regardless of whether they provide a service. Yeah. So whether it's problem solving or helping or guiding another person, their belief in their lovability, indispensability needs to come from within themselves, not trying to secure it through reassurance or reinforcement from someone else, because that outside world is not going to give it to them on a regular basis. And as people believe more within themselves, um, that's going to make them feel more lovable and feel like they need to control people and outcomes and situations less because they're going to, when people try to control people and outcomes and situations, it's because they are desperately trying to get that reinforcement and reassurance. Right. Yep. Sort of got a few questions there that are slipping my mind at the moment, but people pleasing behaviors. Um, Why do we, why do we want to people please? It's it's for that sense of belonging, isn't it? Like we want to, we want to remain in that group, and we don't want to be abandoned. Right. We don't want to be abandoned or disposed of. Yeah, yeah. And we don't trust ourselves enough that we're not going to be abandoned or disposed of, even if we don't do. Um, and and again, I'm not saying don't do. I'm just saying don't do at the expense of yourself. Like if you have something else to do do it. You know, don't like subserve yourself to the group. Don't subserve yourself to another person because another person likely will not subserve themselves to you. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And I was thinking there while you were talking was the, um, you know, people pleasing behaviors sort of remove behaviors that are actually self-pleasing, you know, like self-care activities and stuff like that, because we're always trying to please others. Self-care of yourself. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I believe in self-care, if that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Like if, if you're going out there and always trying to please others, sometimes people uh, that do that, you know, we're, we're forgetting about. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, no, that's not good. Like yeah. I've seen people in a chameleon-like kind of way want to wear the right thing for a group, and that's not authentic, and that's also undermine their self-confidence because they don't feel like they can be their authentic selves, dressing, wearing, doing whatever um, in a group. And that would, that's, is a problem. And I have encouraged a lot of people like, where would you want, who cares what they think? You know, that's, that is not going to impact how they feel about you as a human being, what you wear. Yeah, that's right. Cause these people, please behaviors, if, if something changes that, you know, it likely will, um, and then those people, pleasing behaviors no longer work to secure that self-assurance, then suddenly your self-assurance is out the door and suddenly you're back to square one and suddenly you've got to go out there and do more people-pleasing activities to try and, you know, fit in. So it's a right. it's a vicious cycle. Cool. I like it. Right. What about avoiding assumptions? This is a great one. I like okay. this one too because I, I so often have assumptions and I go, oh, that's yeah. stupid. Don't it's, do it. I know, right? And I pull right. a lot of the people so up on true. it too. Yeah. A lot of people do. Uh, Okay, so a lot of people make assumptions about what other people think or what other people are going to do. People do that as a way of preemptively coping with what they think is going to happen, like uh, like they're playing a chess game. So they think, if this person is going to think this or do that, then I'm going to think this or do that in return. So it's like having six moves down the chessboard in order to protect themselves from different eventualities. The problem with that is that many of these things never, ever happen. So they're not living in the moment. And the and it's taking up a tremendous amount of mind share, all of this overthinking about these potentialities. The other problem is that our behavior changes based on all of this thinking about these potentials. So mm. we can act differently with the people that are in our environment and they can say to us, why are you acting weird? And it's because we've thought they might do this. They might do that. They might think this, they might think that, and they haven't done or thought anything. And so we may, our behavior toward them could change while we're hypothesizing or guessing that they're yeah. going to do or say something right. that we're worried they're going to do. And now we're impacting the social dynamic based on our assumptions. Hmm. The other problem with it is that a lot of times all of this guesswork that we're doing about what we would do um, is a waste of time and energy because basically what we're doing is backhandedly diminishing our belief in our coping skills. We're saying, okay, I need to plan all of this out now because if I don't plan all of this out now, then I'm not going to have the ability to problem solve and cope should something actually happen. And that in and of itself undermines our self-confidence. And that's not good Hmm. because we will have the ability if something were ever to happen to problem solve and cope in the moment. And in that same way, even if we plan it all out, the likelihood that we'll use the solution that we planned out in the moment or something to happen is highly unlikely. Usually we don't have the state of mind in that moment to remember, oh, yeah, when I was playing that chess game in my head, what was the move I was going to make if this came out like this? Because the other person doesn't talk like we talked like them in our heads. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've had so many times where I've, I've sort of made the assumptions and 
It just never pans out like you, you sort of assume it will, and then you're just like, what the hell was that all for, you know? Yes. Um, crazy. Right. Mm, it's interesting. Um, but what, what do we do about it? Like, I mean, it's, it's so easy to fall into the traps of always making assumptions. Right. So I encourage people very strongly to have frustration tolerance and the patience um, to wait for the unknown and to wait and see if something actually happens and then only act if something actually has happened. So to act, to say to themselves, okay, has anything happened yet? Has she or he said anything yet? Has he or she done anything yet? Like, what is the evidence that anything has actually happened or right. been said? And if yeah. nothing has actually happened or nothing has actually been said, then they have to wait. And learning frustration, tolerance, and patience is a huge skill. And it builds self-confidence and it builds a belief in problem solving. It builds a belief in coping. And it also decreases personalization, which is a huge problem that I can undermine life satisfaction because people overthink and overpersonalize. And so a lot of it is, okay, you have to stop in the moment. And when you start to go down a rabbit hole of what ifs, if it hasn't happened, you have to stop and breathe into the unknown. Yeah. So a lot of these things seem to, you know, um, I guess just having a higher level of awareness and and mindfulness of, of the reality that you're living is is probably quite profound. The reality that you're living. You know, no, what I mean is like just having a, a greater level of awareness because when you're in a greater level of awareness, you can sort of be able to make better decisions for example you can sort of understand and assess fears better and and move towards them uh, perhaps with a bit more grace Um, avoiding assumptions for example you can sort of say hang on this is an assumption let's just think about this you know having that 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 level of awareness would be really important to all of these components right for all of them if you can keep the language in your head okay this is an assumption. Like that's why I was trying to make them simple. Like this is an assumption. Pay attention to assumptions. This is the importance of uh, decisions. It's important to make decisions. It's important. Pay attention to like the importance of fear. Pay attention to the importance of closing. Like I was trying to make it so that yeah. if people could be mindful of certain words, maybe it would trigger their brains to attend. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So the final one, six, is active self-reinforcement. What are we looking at here? Yeah, so this one actually surprisingly is the most difficult for people. (laughs) Um, As people start to do the tasks that I'm asking them to do or evaluate themselves in a given situation because the outside world does not reassure or reinforce them effectively, I encourage them to self-reinforce tangibly. So with a tangible reinforcer. So they should be giving themselves tangible reinforcers for a job well done at work, a job well done at home, or if they're doing my techniques, I suggest that they give them also themselves also a tangible reward. Um, instead of looking outside of themselves for tangible rewards, they should be giving them to themselves. Um, <clears throat> so 
instead of delegating the reinforcement to the outside world, because you can't always find it there, if you're uncomfortable with giving that yourself that tangible pat on the back for doing something that you've been proud of, that you're proud of that you did. But people struggle so much with feeling like they've earned reinforcers and they find it really very hard to follow through on giving themselves a gift of any kind at all. And yeah. that's why I find this the hardest one to get anybody to do. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how small I say the gift should be. So I'll tell people, you don't have to spend a lot of money on any of these things. You could buy yourself flowers. You can get your shoes shined. <laughs> you can give yourself a, like, a go watch a game. You can take a bubble bath. It doesn't matter. Hmm. People struggle with anything because they, they debate with me. What is earned mean? What is deserve mean? I mean, how many times I've had conversations about the exact vernacular around earned and deserve is so interesting because if someone else were to give them a gift, they wouldn't for a minute wonder if they earned or deserved it. So people are fine if someone else gives them a gift, but very uncomfortable with giving a gift to themselves. However, active self-reinforcement is critical because in the We've learned from a ton of research and in the animal kingdom that the only way to really habituate to new ways of thinking and new behaviors is with tangible reinforcers. Mm. So if we don't try to reinforce ourselves, and, we're, and I'm encouraging people not to look to it, it from the outside world, then it's going to be very important that people remember to give the reinforcement to themselves if they're not looking for it anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. These are great, great steps, um, techniques, thank you. I should say. Yeah, and um, I do thank you for sharing because you've, you've shared quite a bit, but I, I still want to encourage everyone to go out there and, and pick up a copy of the book, um, have, a, have a deeper read and delve into it a bit further because um, this is very relevant to, to what we talk about here at The Hidden Why often uh, is, you know, moving towards a path of, of greater level of happiness without the um, materialistic sort of version of what happiness is, but um, looking sort of within and finding that level of satisfaction as well. So you've, you've brought a lot of clarity to that journey with us here today, Jennifer. So thanks for that. Oh, I'm so glad. It was so much fun sharing. I love talking about it. I get very excited. I can, I can, <laughs> I can tell. Um, I've got some quick round <laughs> questions for you there. I love your laugh too. Um, I've got some quick round questions to go through. So um okay. I know you've got them prepared. You've had a bit of a read, so let's see what what your answers are. The first one is, what are your rituals or routines that you believe contribute to your success? Okay, so one of the things that I tell people is that I do practice what I preach, so all of those things that I just mentioned to you, I do do them. (laughs) That's good. So one of the things that contributes to my success is that I do believe in self-reinforcement. So I try to give my thing, even though I love what I do, and and you can tell just from my enthusiasm how much I love what I do, but I also try to give myself um, tangible reinforcers. So I give myself things to look forward to that are outside the arena of my work, which are things for me like... I try to make sure that I have theater tickets purchased on my calendar or a trip plan to look forward to, which would, which provides me with time away from work to give me an opportunity to recalibrate and helps me to re-energize and be more creative. Yeah. Cool. I love it. What's your definition, definition of success? 
Success to me is continuing to put challenges in front of me that help me determine the outer limits of my competency level because success means that I don't get stuck in homeostasis. Yeah, I like that. I love all you, the So far, you're sort of ticking what rules are or techniques six and two, I think it was. <laughs> what, um, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? <clears throat> Everything gets better with age. And even though you think you're racing against them, you're not, even though what ended up being the catalyst for me was that I thought I was racing against time, but um, time has passed now. Oh, I'm better now. <laughs> <laughs> Everything gets better with age. Okay, cool. What um, one skill, tool, technique would you recommend for someone looking to improve their productivity or effectiveness? I think feeling comfortable with silence is extremely important to give people space to think before they talk and being able to listen to what people say. And I also think that I really love the exact definition of words. And I don't think that people pay enough attention to the words that they use. And I think that helps me in behavioral psychology and in life, the fact that I try to stay really in tune to the definition of a word. Okay, cool. If I was to serve you your last meal, what would you choose? French toast. <laughs> French toast. What's your uh, most joyous leisure activity? Um, my most joyous leisure activity is singing. Oh, there you go. What do you sing? I usually sing show tunes. Which tunes? Show tunes. Okay. Like Broadway show tunes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. I like that. Do you want to give us an example? No. <laughs> um, what book would you pass down to future generations? One book would you choose? Other than your own, because I'll a, stick that in the show I, a too. Book, a book I read to my kids when they were babies. It's called Love You Forever by Robert Munch. Love You Forever by Robert Munch. I'll stick that in the show notes, guys, and uh, as well as Jennifer's book here. So um, check it out at com and get yourself a copy. What quote, uh, message, would you, or phrase, would you text or tweet to the whole world? Success is from Winston Churchill. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Winston Churchill. He's got a few, doesn't he? Yeah. And do you believe we all have a why? I believe that hopefully we do, and I think that that's one of my missions is I'm trying to draw it out of people, which is why I'm trying to reach people with little access to mental health professionals. Um, yeah. Because I think that if you can work on people to help them build themselves up from within, they'll have a little bit more access to what their purpose might be, authentic yeah. purpose. Yeah, I agree. And what does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? It's me, it means getting up early every day, like 5.30 in the morning, working straight through until 10 p.m., and then getting up and doing it all over again happily and having being extremely lucky to have kids that know that I'm happy to do it and support me doing it because they can see the passion in me. 
Yeah, you've got to have passion for what you do if you're doing those sort of things. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And what's the underlying motivation behind everything you do? Or what do you think it is? Wanting to help people live their best lives. So helping others. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, mate. This has been fantastic. I appreciate you persevering and coming on and going through it. I know you you said you weren't feeling the best waking up this morning, but uh, thanks for coming on and sharing. You've shared a heck of a lot of information, so I'm going to stick as much as I can in the show notes, but um, I really want to encourage you guys out there listening again to jump on, uh, grab a copy of the book and have a read yourself and delve further into this stuff because it's important. Um, And as Jennifer sort of alluded to at the start, um, there's no time better than now because, you know, time is short. Thank you so much for having me. Well, how do, um, how do people best reach out to you? You've got a website there? Yes, I have a website, gutmanpsychology.com, and I am also on all the social media channels and on YouTube, and you can find me on everything um, but Jennifer Gutman. She's everywhere. It is. <laughs> it has been an absolute pleasure, Jennifer, with having you. Um, yeah, thanks again. Let's stay connected. And guys out there listening, until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon